speaking of not being ready, last night I, um, I told my wife I'd make her dinner. That didn't go over very well. Um, not because she wouldn't let me make dinner, but um, I was at work and I said, you know what? She's working on things at home. She's doing all this stuff. I said, you know what? I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of dinner tonight. And I text her that and I said, I'll come home at like, uh, I don't know, 7.30. And she started to get hungry because she's pregnant, right? Because the small stomach, right? got to eat a lot. So she's, she's waiting for me, and I finally say, okay, I'm leaving. Is there anything I need to pick up from the store? And I'm, like, trying to, like, text her as I'm, like, leaving the parking lot. I'm, like, speaking into my phone, trying to get, should I turn? Should I go anywhere? And she said, yes, you need to go to Trader Joe's. So she sent me to Trader Joe's. I had to buy a couple things for dinner. This happened last night. Okay, this is recent headlines. Last night, I, um, I'm going into Trader Joe's, and um, my wife gives me so many instructions, like she doesn't trust me. She doesn't. Now, when it comes to Trader Joe's, she says, I want you to get the, the bruschetta. Do you know what bruschetta is? It's that, um, it's cool. Like you put it on toast. It's like, it's like salsa for Italians, right? It's all it is. It's like salsa, just not spicy. You put it on your bread. Guess what? I couldn't find it. So I'm walking around like a loser, like an absolute loser, walking back and forth and back and forth in front of the one place that she says it should be. And then finally I caved. And I just called. It's like what you guys do with your moms, right? Like when you don't know what to do, it's like, ah, all right, I'll just, I'll just call my parents, right? That's what I did. I, I called. Um, and I was expecting this whole time, like, you know what? It's okay. I'm still making dinner for tonight. Nobody is going to stop me from making dinner. So I buy the groceries. I, I get a little instructions from her on what to do. I come home and I'm, I got this whole plan. I'm making her dinner tonight. She's pregnant. Her feet are getting big. Like she needs to like stay up like it's all good. I'm going to feed her tonight. She always feeds me. And then I come in the door and I was so excited because she was like in Eden's room, right? Like in the like chair thing. That's sorry. It's, it's called the chair. That's what it is that she was sitting in the rocking chair. Yes. And I'm like so excited. And I'm like, you, you haven't gotten up. You're ready for me to make you dinner. And then I turn the corner, go to the kitchen and guess what I see? Dinner. Dinner. <laughs> Alfredo on the stove like frozen that it was like still in its little clumps she was making dinner and I thought Alexandra why didn't you trust me and then she said well you had to call me to figure out where the stuff was at Trader Joe's I'm not going to trust you and I said that's a good point you're right um so all that to say if I ever offer to cook for you don't believe it because it's not going to work out. Because I guess I've proven to be not trustworthy. And I totally get it. I wouldn't trust myself either. But guess what? If my wife tells me she's making food, guess what? Well, I trust her. Because she's done it over and over again. She's proven herself. If she says, I'm making dinner. I never even have a second thought that, oh, maybe she, she won't do it. Maybe she doesn't know how to shop. She knows how to do it. She's done it a million times. Okay? I haven't. I'm untrustworthy. She's trustworthy. And it makes sense for her not to trust me. Why? Because... I'm not good at it. I'm not trustworthy. If I talked to her and I didn't trust her to make me dinner, what would you think about me? You think that's pretty dumb, okay? Because she's pretty good at it. She can do it. She does it all the time. Why don't you trust her? That question is the question we should all feel as we approach this text right here. When we look at Isaiah chapter seven, there's a problem because some people are not trusting God. God has shown himself over and over again to be trustworthy. He said things to the people and he's made promises and then sometimes they don't trust him. It makes sense for you not to trust me to make you dinner. It doesn't make sense for these people 
not to trust God. I want you to see this text, Isaiah chapter 7. Next chapter, we looked at Isaiah 6 last week with Lewis. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 7. Super important. We've got a man named Ahaz. He's the king. Remember last time we saw it was the year that King Uzziah died. Jotham was now the king. Now we got Jotham's son Ahaz sitting on the throne. He's the king. So this is about 10 years later. And it says that there's a problem and it's a test. Will you trust God? It's the test that this king was under. Isaiah chapter seven. If you open up to the middle of your Bibles, it should be right around there. Isaiah chapter seven. It says, in the days of Ahaz, new king, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Okay, basically what that means is you've got two countries that joined together to attack this city where Ahaz was, the city of Jerusalem. It's the main center of what we've been looking at so far in the book of Isaiah. Two different countries joined together. It's like what happened. I saw some of you out there. Um, we were hitting balls at each other tonight. I don't know if, if you were part of that. We were throwing, uh, someone threw a ball at me, and then I started throwing back, and then, um, then all these people got in on it. Uh, I think it was Josh. Josh, you threw a ball at me tonight, and then all, I saw all the guys to you know, join in and, and hit him with a ball. So um, all these guys started throwing a ball at Josh tonight. Why? Because I told them to. Uh, <laughs> Because he attacked me, so I will just throw a bunch of balls at him. Well, guess what that was like? It was a lot like this. Because there was a whole group of people attacking Jerusalem. Why were they attacking Jerusalem? Look at what it says. It says they were attacking it, but they couldn't do it. Verse 2. It says, when the house of David, that's the, the kingly family of, of Judea, when they were told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, it says, when these two nations are joined together to take them down, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You can imagine that feeling. Imagine you were told that two different kingdoms joined forces and were gonna attack your city. And they brought their swords and then they brought their rocks and they brought their bows and arrows and they had them all pointed at you. How would you feel? Pretty scared, right? That's how they feel. Look at verse three. It says, the Lord said to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, so this is Isaiah's message to King Ahaz. Really, it's God's message to this king who's afraid. Look what he says, verse four. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand at the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up to Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up Tabiel as king in the midst of it. So God is telling this king, don't be afraid. I know it's scary. I know you've got these big kingdoms that are bigger than you that are coming to attack you, but God has a clear message. Don't be afraid. Trust me. That's the message. That's what Ahaz should be taking. Look what God keeps talking. Verse 7, for thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. Syria was the nation. Damascus was the capital city. So he's saying the capital city of Syria is Damascus. And it says in the head of Damascus is reason. That makes sense. Reason was the king. So it's like nation, state, or nation, city, capital city, king. It's like he's the head and he's the head and he's the head. Okay. Then it says in within 65 years, Ephraim, that, that nation you're afraid of, the Israelite nation up at the top, they will be shattered from being a people. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. They're not even going to be a people group anymore in 65 years. 
And it says, in the head of Ephraim is Samaria. So Ephraim is another name for Israel. Samaria is the capital city, okay? Who's the head of Samaria? The son of Ramaliah, okay? The king. It says, and if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a test for these people. Will they trust God? Remember last week where we saw that Isaiah has a vision of God? He sees God high and lifted up. He sees him different and holy and perfect. Isaiah sees that and communicates that message to the people. The question is, are they going to fear God? Are they going to listen to God? Are they going to trust God? Or are they going to be afraid of their circumstances? Are they going to be afraid of all the stuff around them that they can't control? When God promises success, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. What that means is God said, I will do a miracle for you. If you're doubting me, I will do any miracle you ask me to. Raise someone from the dead, I'll make it happen. Make the sun go dark, I can make it happen. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you just to prove that I'm serious that you should trust me. Think about that. If you were Ahaz, what would you have said to God? You probably have been like, ooh, any miracle I could have? Okay, let me think. This is a good opportunity. Not very many times people get this opportunity to ask God for any miracle they can have. Ahaz had that opportunity. Look what Ahaz says. It might not be what you expect. Verse 12, but Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't that sound like, like a righteous person? Like, oh, he doesn't want to put God to the test, right? Deuteronomy 6.16, I don't want to put God to the test. Look what Isaiah said. And he said, hear, O house of David. So not just Ahaz, but his whole family. Listen to this. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He asks them a question. You are putting God to the test right now because here's the truth. Ahaz already made a decision to not follow God. We see that in the book of 2 Kings. We see that in the book of 2 Chronicles. Ahaz made a choice. Instead of trusting God to fight these two nations, Syria and Israel, he was actually, he stole all the money from the household of God. He took all the silver and gold and he sent it up in a caravan to the king of Assyria, a different nation, a bigger, stronger nation. He paid them to say, I'm scared. Please take care of these two people. Please take care of Ephraim. Please take care of Syria. I don't want to fight them. Please take care of them and take all this money. And guess whose money it was? God's money. He already made a decision. I'm not going to trust God. So when God asks for a request, hey, I'll do any miracle you want if you'll trust me. Ahaz says, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm not even going to trust you. I refuse to trust God because he already took all these steps into sin. Because he already said, I, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself, God is going to give you a sign. He's going to do a miracle. What's the miracle? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. You might have heard that verse before because that's like a Christmas verse, right? Emmanuel, God with us. That's, that's talking about Jesus, isn't it? It is. 700 years before Jesus was born, his birth is promised right here. He's going to be born of a virgin, unique birth. And they're going to call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The people were afraid because they acted like God was not with them. And God tells them, no, I will be with you if you trust me. But if not, I won't be with you. Ahaz is put in a problem because he uh, doesn't trust God here. Right? We already see that. The question for us as we keep going through this book of Isaiah is, 
Are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust God? Will you believe what God says? Do you believe that God will keep his promises? Because the interesting thing that happens in this text right here is God makes a promise that's so overarching. And what I mean by that is it goes even beyond their current circumstance to pointing towards the end, pointing towards Jesus. Jesus has promised here 700 years before he ever showed up. As you study this book, and as I study this book, I know the big thing that God wants us to take away is that you and I need to have a deeper trust in God. We need to trust God more. Ahaz didn't trust God. We need to look at this and say, we have every reason to trust God. Just like Alexander has given me every reason to trust her cooking, just like I have given her every reason to doubt my cooking, right? We need to trust God because he's proved himself. And that's the big thing we're going to look at tonight. How has God proved himself to be faithful? Faithful is a word that we use a lot in the Bible. What that means is that God makes promises and keeps promises. We're going to see a bunch of promises that God makes in this text. And we're going to see how he keeps them, which should inspire you and me to trust God every single day. The first problem that we see with Ahaz is he doesn't fear God. He fears people. What is he afraid of in this situation? He's afraid of getting attacked. And that might seem like a, like a reasonable fear, but here's the problem. He fears people so much that he doubts God. Okay? Sometimes those two things, can't, they can't live together. Trusting God and fearing other people. Doing what God says and being afraid of potential embarrassment in front of other people. I want you to write this down for point number one. Don't doubt God because of a fear of man. Don't doubt God because of a fear of man. Now, that phrase fear of man, you may not have heard that before. In the Bible, we see that phrase come up a few times. And what it basically means is a, a bad fear that you can have of people that makes you want to disobey God. For example, okay, here's a big one. God's pretty clear in his word that he does not want his Christians specifically kids who are Christians, children, doesn't want them to disobey their parents, right? We know that. Bible says that. Old Testament, it says that again in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 4, right? Ephesians 6, 1, rather. So you know that God says, don't disobey your parents. You know that, right? You've heard that before. Okay. The problem is, when you talk to people at school, there might be people at school who think it's good and cool to disobey your parents, so here's what can happen. If you are afraid of their opinion of you, it can push you to do the wrong thing. Here's another example. Bible's pretty clear about um, not having um, any corrupting talk or crude joking come out of your mouth, right? That's in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, right? Pretty clear. Bible says Christians shouldn't do that. But because of a fear of people, maybe when you're at school, because you're afraid that you won't look cool if you don't engage in bad joking, you'll engage in that bad joking, even though you know it's wrong. What are you doing in that moment? You're doubting God. You're disobeying God because you're afraid of people. You have a fear of man. That's what this is talking about. Ahaz has a fear of man problem, but ultimately that stems from the fact that he had chosen many years before to disobey God. I mentioned a verse for you. I just want you to write these two verses down. 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Chronicles 28, 1 to 6. That's the description of King Ahaz's life. And here's what it says about King Ahaz. King Ahaz turned from God. He didn't serve God like, like David, his great grandpa did. He didn't serve God like David. What he did do was he served other Baals. This is 2 Chronicles 28, 
2 Chronicles 28, 1 to 6. It says he served other gods, and even worse than that, it says that he took some of his own kids, his, his own children, and burned them in the fire to false gods. Took some of his kids and put them over a flame and burned them alive as a sacrifice to false gods. Okay? Good guy or bad guy, right? Really bad guy. He made that decision before he was tested. Horrible guy, right? That's terrible, horrible. God says it's super evil and wrong. He also made up his mind to trust King um, Tiglath-Pileser III, is technically his name, um, of Assyria. You don't have to write that one down. That's a little long. Um, I call him TP3 for short. Um, He trusts TP3 up in Assyria more than he trusts God. And what he did was he took all of God's stuff and sent it off to him. Because he didn't trust God, he trusted these other people. The Old Testament has something to say about this. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. I'd love for you to write that one down too. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. That's a trap. Right? A snare, like those bear traps. You ever seen those big bear traps that people step on? And then, um, and then the claw comes up and like takes out their leg. Or maybe, have you seen the mouse traps? You know what a mouse trap looks like? So, all right, full disclosure, my, um, my house growing up had, um, had rats. I think my parents' house still does have rats. I hope they, I think they've taken care of them. But they had all these like, ways to like, you know, kill them. Um, and one of the ways they had to kill them was, was the, the good old mouse trap. So one time, my brother and I were probably like 16, 17. Uh, we thought it'd be fun to just, hey, there's no more rats. Let's, let's see if we can like, Messed with the mousetrap. So that was fun. Um, we had these pencils. It was crazy, actually. We took pencils and we like poked the mousetrap and the pencil would just like snap and break in our hands. Like, oh, that's so cool. We videoed it and stuff. I probably still have a video somewhere. Um, but that's what a snare is. It's a trap, okay? It says the fear of man is like a trap, right? You stick your hand in there <laughs> or a mouse, you know, sticks his little body in there and boom, trap. It's a trap. The fear of man is a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man is a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's what Proverbs say. What does Jesus say about this in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear people who can kill your body, but cannot kill the soul. What do you mean? Well, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than these sparrows. So clearly saying that God has some care for us. What does he say next? Well, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, whoever is not ashamed of Jesus, says Jesus will acknowledge them before his father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me, whoever's afraid of people, whoever's ashamed of Jesus in this world, I'll also deny before my father who's in heaven. You want to confess me? You want to tell people that you know me? Well, guess what? I will gladly, Jesus says, tell my father all about you and says, I know that person. That's one of my people. But if you're ashamed that people at school might find out that you go to church, maybe for some of you, that's the reason you don't want to become Christians because you don't want to have to totally buy into this. So you think, well, I can keep my my, my friends at school, I can keep all of them happy. I can do my sin over there. I can come to church and do my thing over here. Maybe that's the reason some of you don't trust God at all because the fear of man is a trap. But whoever trusts the Lord will be safe. 
It's interesting. Jesus actually quotes the book of Isaiah. So Lewis looked at this last week. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10 says that Isaiah's mission was to preach to the people, but the problem was not everyone would respond. Some people would hear Isaiah's preaching and not respond to it. Well, Jesus looks at his earthly ministry. This is John chapter 12, verses 37 to 43. The apostle John writes about it and says, although Jesus did many signs, miracles before the people, they still did not believe them. So the word that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the honor of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and I would turn and heal them. So the people were embarrassed of Jesus, even in his lifetime. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Interesting. Nevertheless, many of the authorities at the time of Jesus, they believed in him. A lot of people in Jesus' time saw Jesus, saw his miracles, and they even thought, I bet this guy is special. There's something different about him. They believed in him. But then, for fear of the Pharisees, for fear of the, the authorities, they did not confess it. They didn't want to tell anybody. They wanted to keep it in so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose friends. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that's the question we need to answer tonight. Do you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Are you doubting God, not obedient to God, whatever it is, because of a fear of man? Ahaz was. I want you to check your heart tonight and make sure that's not talking about you. Because chances are in a room this size, that's describing many of you, a big percentage of you that is afraid of people, even ashamed to be associated with Jesus. Jesus says that's because people love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That was the main problem that started Isaiah's speech and his talking towards Ahaz because Ahaz was afraid. It didn't end there though because Isaiah is trying to get Ahaz to trust God, right? Just like we look at this passage and we say, Clearly, Isaiah wants us to trust God too. God wants us to trust him. Well, look what God does to prove himself. Look back in our text. Look at Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. It's the promise. It's what we talked about a little bit before. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You want a miracle? Here's a miracle. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Clearly, we think that's talking about Jesus in the future. But then he goes back to their time period and look what he says in verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Right? That's kind of like, a whoo, what he's talking about there. What he's saying is by the time he's old enough to make decisions like what's good and what's bad. So by the time he's, he's your age, basically, by the time this baby is your age, he'll be eating tons of food, honey and curds. He'll have tons of stuff. Right now they're in a siege, right? They're getting attacked. The point is by the time this baby grows up, all the people you're afraid of won't even be a problem anymore. Verse 16. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and your father's house such days as has not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's referring to when Jeroboam left Rehoboam and split the kingdom in 930 BC after the reign of Solomon. Says then with that dash there, the king of Assyria. 
What is he promising? Then what he's going to do is promise that Assyria, that big kingdom that they were trusting, guess what Assyria would end up doing? They'd end up turning on Judah. They were trusting them. They gave them all their money. And says, those people, the big bully that you just gave all your lunch money to, guess what? He's going to come back for more. You gave it to him to try to protect you from the two little bullies, right? You gave your lunch money. Okay, I know this is kind of weird. You don't really do this. Um, but you can follow this, right? Imagine you give your money to this big bully to protect you from two smaller bullies. You give your lunch money. This doesn't actually happen, does it? No, okay, good. Good. You're like, no, I've never, okay. But imagine, you know, you've seen movies like this, right? Where there's like a bully, right? Have you not, never seen a movie? No? No? Yes? No? Do you know what I'm talking, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll stop talking. Do you know what I'm talking about? The bully? Yeah. Imagine you pay a bully, the biggest one. You give him all your lunch money. You say, protect me from these two other bullies. And he says, okay, I'll do it. He protects you. Then guess what he does the next day? Comes after you. That's what happens with Israel right here. That's what happens with Judah. They're trusting the big bully. And God says, because you trust him and not me, guess what? He's going to come try to attack you. And that's exactly what happens next in the book of Isaiah. The kingdom of Assyria attacks this Judean kingdom. God makes promises. Then in, in chapter eight, God gives Isaiah a son and says, before your son grows up, before he can even say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that capital city, that nation they're afraid of, will be carried off. The wealth of Samaria, it will be carried off too. Before this kid, before Isaiah's son, even knows how to say mama and dada, okay? Before he's even able to do that, guess what? These two kingdoms that Judah is so afraid of will be destroyed. And guess what happens next? Exactly that. Exactly that. They're destroyed. And again, what does this prove? Proves it. You got to trust God. He makes promises and he fulfills promises. Point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. Be confident that God always keeps his promises. Be confident that God always keeps his promises every single time. Never once has he failed on a promise. Never once. My wife does not always believe I can cook. Why? Because guess what? I've failed. I've tried. I've failed. And she plans accordingly. If I tell her, hey, I'm going to make dinner, she says, yeah, okay. Okay. Right. Your decisions that you make about your life are also based on how much you trust God. I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but just about every decision you make has some correlation with what you believe about God. You believe God is not real. If you believe God does not see what you do, you make certain decisions accordingly. If you believe God is there and you fear God and you respect God as the God, the holy God that he is, there are certain decisions that you're gonna make that are different from the person who doesn't believe that. Your decisions will be guided by what you believe about God. One of the things you need to believe about God is that he's a faithful God. He makes promises, he keeps promises. It's interesting that he gives them a long-term promise, right? In chapter seven, verse 14, what's the long-term promise? That God's gonna send someone who's gonna be God with us, right? And then in chapter eight, he gives them this short-term promise with Isaiah's son, who's gonna be the fulfillment of, hey, guess what? Before your kid's even able to talk to you, all those kingdoms you're afraid of will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens in history. You see God's long-term fulfillments and his short-term fulfillments. Long-term prophecy, short-term prophecy. Guess what? God does every time. He keeps his promises. The long-term prophecy here, 
we see fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Love for you to write down Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Matthew 1, 20 to 23. Here's what it says. It tells the story of Jesus' birth. It says, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, which think about this, why is that important? Who was the promise made to? That promise that is made chapter back in Isaiah 7, 14. Look at, who, uh, look at verse 13. Here, O house of who? David. O family of David. Now, what does Jesus, or what, what does um, the angel say to Joseph? Son of David. Guess what? There's a promise for you that was made in the Old Testament. What is it? It says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She wasn't committing immorality. So she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want you to think this through. If the command here is to trust God, what you're being told to do is something that's pretty simple, if you can think about it. You're being told to trust a God who makes promises and fulfills them 700 years later exactly how he promised. You see that God has proved himself over and over again? He proved himself with Isaiah's baby that was born, where he took out those kingdoms. He proves himself with this big long-term promise where Jesus is going to come. He's going to really be born of a virgin, conceived without the ordinary means, right? He's going to be born. Emmanuel, God with us. And he would actually be God with us because the God that's being described here in the book of Isaiah is the God that we're talking about. When we say Jesus is God, that's, that's God, okay? Jesus is God. Think that through. The baby that would be born wouldn't just be any natural baby. This baby that was coming, is God in the flesh, the Holy One. Isaiah 6, remember that? High and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then he comes down as a human being. That's who we've been talking about. And that's when we talk about Jesus, that's who we're talking about. God makes promises and he keeps his promises. He even promises where he's going to be born. The city that he's gonna be born. That's in Micah chapter five, verse two. He says, hey, Bethlehem, you're going to be the, the city where one who is from of old, from ancient of days, again, saying that this person is going to be an eternal person. He lived before he was born. You didn't live before you were born. Sorry about that, right? I didn't exist before 1990. Um, I didn't exist before then, okay? I just like censored my age right there. Um, I didn't exist. Guess what? You didn't exist before 2000, right? You didn't. You didn't exist. Guess what? Before Jesus was born, guess what? He existed. He was from of old, from the ancient of days, from before time even began. He existed and he was God. All throughout the Bible, we see truth over and over again that God makes promises and keeps promises. If you don't believe that, write this verse down. Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. Joshua 23, 14. It says, this is Joshua at the end of his life. He's just gone into the, to the land. They've taken over. They've done everything that God's told them to do. And guess what? There's peace. And God kept his promises. Here's what he says. This is Joshua 23, 14. 
He says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, a.k.a. he's going to die. And you know this in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised has failed. Not one word has failed, but all has come to pass. Not even one of them has failed. So he's telling all the people around him, and that's what you need to know. Okay, not one word of God has ever failed. So when God says, trust me, he's the most trustworthy being in the universe. If I say, trust me to make you dinner, guess what? You shouldn't trust me that much, okay? If you say, trust me, I'll I'll catch you. If you just start to, you know, if you want to jump in the crowd and crowd surf, oh, just trust me, I'll catch you. I don't trust you, okay? I don't, because that's dumb. If God says, trust me, never dumb to trust God. Why? Because he's proved it over and over again. In the New Testament, he says the same thing. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Although some people look at the promises of God and say, hey, why hasn't Jesus come back? All right, that's one big thing God promised. Jesus said, I'm coming back. Where is he? What? I don't see him. He hasn't come back yet. Some people say, well, he's slow to fulfill his promise. He says, well, he's not slow. God's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is because he wants people like you to turn from your sin. But, verse 10, this is 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You will be exposed for the person that you are. Your works will be exposed. He says, that's coming fast, and it can come at any time. Come like a thief. So the question is, and I proposed this at the beginning, your decisions that you make, really, whether you think about them or not, they're based on what you believe about God. If you believe God is holy, you're gonna make decisions accordingly. If you believe that you want to be like God, you'll make decisions accordingly. If you don't, then you probably won't question is, are you confident that God will keep his promises? Especially if, if, if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, are you confident in the promises of God? Do you believe them? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe that he's called you to be holy? Do you believe that your works will be exposed? Do you believe that you'll be judged by Jesus one day, that he'll evaluate your life? Do you believe that? Right, and if you're a non-Christian, I guess it makes sense why you don't believe those things, but if you're a non-Christian, do you believe what God says about how to be saved? Because here, here's some good news for you. 1 John 1, 9 says that if you confess your sin, if you tell God, I agree, my sins are terrible, and you start to think through what those sins are, if you confess your sins, give those to God. Say, I'm repenting, I'm turning away from those sins. I won't do them anymore. I'm done with them. You confess your sins. God is faithful. That means he keeps his promises. And he's just. He's able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? When you confess your sins to God, say, God, I confess these sins, these are wrong. Please forgive me. Do you believe that he's forgiven you? Maybe going back to those of you that are Christians, do you believe that? That God has forgiven you? Or do you constantly think, no, I don't think God forgave me. I don't think God's forgiven me. Well, then you don't trust God. Do you believe this? What Jesus said in John 14, he says, ask anything in my name according to my will and it will be done for you. Do you believe that? Ask anything that God wants you to ask for 
God wants you to ask for sanctification. First Thessalonians 4.3, right? It's God's will for you. God's will for you is also that you would give thanks in all circumstances. If you ask God for a thankful heart, guess what? God wants to hear that prayer. God wants to give you that. James 1.5, asking for wisdom. The question is like, if you believe those things, it's going it's to be shown in your life. You're going you're to see it. Crazy thing is God goes beyond the promises just about this time period with Ahaz, this king that we've been talking about. He goes beyond it, and in this text, he's actually going to stretch so far into the future that he's going to make promises that we're going to see in chapter 9. So I want everybody to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 in the next chapter. We're looking at chapter 8 just now. Look at chapter 9. We're going to see promises that are made here that have only started to be fulfilled. Some of these have been fulfilled. Others of these haven't even been fulfilled yet. There's still future. So we still look forward to some of these in faith, trusting that God's going to make them happen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. You can actually look up in your text, Isaiah 8, 22. One verse up. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. All right, who, who are we talking about? We're talking about a group of people that chose to not believe in God, not trust God, and they were going to live in darkness, so to speak. Now, look at Isaiah 9.1. Check it out. Everybody look in your Bibles. Isaiah 9.1. But behold, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see the future tense and past tense there? That in the future, there won't be the gloom, the, the darkness, the, the scariness in the future for those who in the past were in that darkness. In the former time, God, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Okay, those are two tribes that lived in the northern part of Israel. So it says there was a time period when God made it very, very bad for them. Okay, what was that time period? Well, it was actually the time period that is being talked about right now when Ephraim and Syria were together and Assyria comes in, this big, powerful kingdom, and then Babylon later on. They all come in and just take out these people in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's a terrible place to live at that point. It was always getting taken over. It was actually, it was right on the border of all of these kingdoms. And if you can imagine that, if you've got all these attacking kingdoms up here and you're the town that's right on the border, guess what? You're always gonna get hit first, right? You're always gonna get pummeled. It says those areas, they were in a bad time, but it says in a latter time, so in the former days that were bad, but in a latter time, at the end times, guess what's going to happen? He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee. Is that familiar to any of you that were named Galilee? Or what do you think of when you think of Galilee? Shout it out. What do you think of when you think of Galilee? The Sea of Galilee, right? The Sea of Galilee. Why do you know the Sea of Galilee? Right? Who lived up in Galilee's region? Because it says in the end time, someone's going to live in Galilee. Someone's going to be there. Verse 2, check it out. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Okay. You see who this is talking about? Do you see who this is talking about? Do you? Who's this talking about? Jesus, right? There you go. Right? That was easy, right? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. He lived in this land. People did not like that land. It was always bad. People thought it was evil. Yeah, it was evil. But guess what? A light shone in the darkness. You know what Jesus called himself in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the 
light of the world. I'm the light. Even in the book of Matthew, this text is quoted. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 says, Jesus left Nazareth and he went to live in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Do you see God making promises and keeping promises over and over? Do you see that right here? What's the promise that he made? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And it's the end of the quote. This is Matthew 4, 17. Then it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's the light that shines in this dark place? Jesus is gonna come and preach the gospel. That's what's being promised here. Jesus is gonna come and preach the gospel. Now verse three, back in our text. So verse one and two, we saw that happened, right? Jesus came, the light started at dawn in that really dark place, that really evil place. Verse three, what's gonna happen next? Well, you've multiplied the nation. So the people living there, there's gonna be more people living there. You have increased its joy, the joy before you as the joy at the harvest as they were glad when they divide the spoil. The idea of like, they're going to have so much stuff. They're going to be well taken care of. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Basically saying all the people, all the, the oppression that those people felt, all broken. Right, a yoke was that big thing that they'd put on. Uh, you've maybe seen that before. The oxen, right, those big animals that have the yoke on them that would tie two animals together and they'd carry a big load. It says it's like God takes an ax to that yoke and cuts that yoke off. There's all the oppressors, gone. The rod for their back, the staff for their shoulder, all that, gone. As on the day of Midian. Midian, it's a reference to the book of Judges where God saved the people of Israel through a guy named Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon, Midian, the veggie tales about the guy who brought the big band out and all the people got scared and killed each other, right? Remember that veggie tales? That's Gideon. That's the day of Midian, right? Where he gets the big jazz band around the, the rim of the canyon. Can you envision this veggie tales with me now? Right? And he starts playing the tunes and they all like smash each other with their, you know, swords. <laughs> That's what happened. The day of Midian. God saved them. How did he save them? Just by having these people crash their pots together and their pans together and by shouting and by blowing their trumpets and all of that, God saved the people through an insignificant hero like Gideon, seemingly insignificant. It says, that's gonna happen again. Verse five, check this out, Isaiah 9, five. Keep following along. It says, for every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It says, one day all the the army uniforms that are stained with blood because of the wars, guess what they're going to do? They're going to take those things and they're going to burn them in the fire. They're going to take all the weapons and they're just going to get rid of them, right? Has that happened yet? No, that hasn't happened yet. There's still wars and weapons and all that stuff is still necessary in this world today because Jesus hasn't come back. That's why the second half of this section is talking about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. He's going to destroy all these bad things. They're going to be gone. Verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6. Check it out in your Bibles. Isaiah 9, 6. Check it out. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this son that's going to be born is going to be called, guess what? God. How can a kid who's born, how can he be called God? That doesn't work, does it? Well, unless it's Emmanuel, unless it's that person who's God with us, unless the person who's born is actually God, unless God himself enters the picture, which is exactly what he did. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So when Jesus comes back, guess what happens? Peace forever. No more war, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, gone. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Right? This world is full of injustice and unrighteousness. People get away with murder. People do terrible things in this world right now. And it seems like they get away with it. It says, but in this world, when Jesus remakes it and he sits as king, never again. Perfect righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And if you don't believe that this is going to happen, look at the last line here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says, I did all those things in the past. Guess what I'm promising? It's going to happen in the future. This stuff I just promised right here. Point number three, set all your hope on King Jesus to fix the world. Set all your hope on King Jesus to fix the world, which is why, you see how this goes beyond Ahaz's little situation? Right? He's got a problem. He's got a situation, but this goes so far beyond that. It comes all the way past where we are, looks into the future. Jesus is going to take care of this problem. This whole thing about Ahaz and the prophecies and stuff, it's meant to get us to do this. Let's trust God more. This text, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in particular, is trying to get you to trust God more. Specifically, it's getting you to point to Jesus himself. And as we look back on the life of Jesus, I want you to see a few things. First of all, here in chapter 9, verse 6, he's got four names, four things that he's called. First one he's called is Wonderful Counselor. You got some subpoints underneath that point number three. Why don't you write this down for this first one? Jesus gives perfect wisdom. Jesus gives perfect wisdom. That's what it means for him to be the wonderful counselor. So if you ever doubt trusting God, just remember this Jesus gives perfect wisdom. Isaiah 28, 29, this phrase is used of God. It says, All this comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. That's talking about the Lord, right? But guess what? In this text, who's it talking about? Well, it's talking about this son that's going to be born. Do you see how over and over again the Bible's trying to get you to see? Do you see this son, this Messiah? He's going to be divine. He's going to be God. He's not just going to be a man. He's going to be God. Colossians chapter 2 talks about Jesus. It says, in him, our hearts are encouraged, knit together in love, reaching the fullness of assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Christ. We have knowledge in Christ. God's secrets, think about it. There are things that God did not say that Jesus showed us. Right? John chapter one says he reveals the Father to us. Things that he showed us. It's called wonderful counsel, also called mighty God. Okay? More proof that Jesus is God. That second thing I'd love for you to write down is Jesus has limitless power. Jesus has limitless power. He's all power. He's able to save people. He's able to keep his promises, which is why if God's promises seem too good to be true, that he's gonna take the world and all the unrighteousness and he's gonna destroy it one day, if that feels too good to be true, here's the thing you're forgetting. Jesus is the mighty God. He's gonna do it. 
He's able to do it. Again, it's so interesting that throughout Isaiah, it's like Isaiah wants us to look back at this text and see over and over again he references this text. Another time he does that is Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, 20 to 21. It says, in that future day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer lean on the, him who struck them, but they're going to lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. It says, one day, these people are going to turn back to the mighty God. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Lord, but in Isaiah 9, who's he talking about? This son that's going to be born. You see how over and over again, it's like, because this son is going to be God in the flesh. It's going to be Jesus. He's also called everlasting father. That means he existed for eternity and he's made all of us. Think that through. Jesus existed for eternity and he made all of us. Third point is this. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. So if you ever think, okay, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if I can trust what he says. Well, remember, Jesus gives perfect wisdom. He has limitless power. And further, he's the source of life. He's the reason you exist. You don't exist unless Jesus makes you. Think that through. That's crazy, but that's the truth. John 1, verse 3 and 4. John 1, verse 3 and 4 talks about Jesus. It says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So anything you see that's been made, guess what? Jesus had a part in that. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The reason you exist, the reason you have fun times because of Jesus. Jesus gave you that. Jesus gave me that. Colossians 1, 16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists, guess why it exists? It exists because Jesus made it for him. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? I exist because Jesus made me for him. You exist because Jesus made you for him. That's why listening to Jesus is the only logical way. He's also called Prince of Peace. It says the government will be on his shoulder. He'll rule this kingdom and it will be in peace forever. That last subpoint, Jesus will establish eternal peace. Jesus will establish eternal peace forever. Revelation 21 talks about that. It says that one day there'll be no more crying, no pain, no sorrow, no death, any of that anymore because the former things have passed away. So if someone asks you, why do you believe in Jesus? Right? These should be a part of the answers right here. Why do you believe in Jesus? Well, I believe in, I trust anything he says. Colossians chapter one, verses 20 to 22 says, through him to reconcile to himself all things whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So how did Jesus make peace? Well, initially, how does he make peace between you and God? How is that possible? If you're a sinful person, like we talked about last week, like Isaiah 6, right? Remember, he recognized he's a sinful person. How does God make peace? By the blood of Jesus. It says in you guys, he talks to Christians now, you were once separated from God. There was a time where you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, doing whatever you wanted. But now he's reconciled you in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him.
Jesus is going to establish perfect peace. That's why we saw that in Isaiah chapter 2. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 4. You see it again in Isaiah chapter 11. It's this description of a perfect world. How is it going to be a perfect world? Because Jesus is going to remake it. Because Jesus is going to reign as king. The question is, do you believe that? And are you going there? Are you going there? It says, because the whole point of Isaiah is all the people that oppose God, all the people that want to go against God, people like Ahaz, he's not going there because he's opposing God. All the people that submit to God and trust God and repent of their sins and turn to Jesus and trust him, just like everything we've been talking about tonight, trusting God, the people who trust in Jesus, you will be saved. You know why I know that? Because God makes promises and he keeps promises. That's how you can know that too. So a lot of you have asked the question, like, how, how can I know I'm saved? Well, if you trusted in Jesus, God makes promises and he keeps promises. The promise he's made is if you trust in him with your whole heart, he will forgive you. So what you need to do is you need to trust him. That's the whole point. This whole night I've been um, upset about my cooking skills. Have you noticed that? You know, there's a way for me to fix that, I suppose. If I, um, if I go home tonight and, I don't know, turn on TV and turn on YouTube and start watching cooking videos, Alexander's going to think I'm bitter or something. Um, if I start watching cooking videos on YouTube, maybe she'll trust me a little bit more, I guess, in the kitchen. Maybe if I, like, signed up to do, like, a cooking class, she might trust me a little bit more. Maybe not completely. Um, if I started practicing cooking and, like, making her meals for myself and, you know, sometimes for her, maybe she would trust me a little bit more. Um, I proved myself. She doesn't have to do that because she's already proven herself. Maybe I would have to do that. I've said this before, but I want this to be ingrained in your mind. God has proven himself trustworthy. He has proven himself over and over again. Which is why you should trust in Jesus for salvation. That's what we talk about all the time. But that's why. That's why we can know for certain. If we call on Jesus, we ask him to save us, ask him to forgive us, He'll do it because he promised and he's faithful. If you don't trust in Jesus, you're not at peace with him. You're not a part of that conversation, but I want everyone to be part of that conversation. I want everyone to trust God, just like Ahaz should have, and he didn't. Don't be like Ahaz. Be like Isaiah. Be like the Christians in the room who trust Jesus their whole life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd help us with this. It's hard to trust you when we can't see you face to face right now. But I know for myself and the other Christians in the room, as the book of Peter says, that though we can't see you, we love you. We don't see you face to face. We are yearning, longing to see you face to face. Just ask that tonight as we consider your promises and your fulfillment to those promises, that we'd see that you're faithful and we would never doubt you. Pray further that those of us who doubt your word and doubt your promises, I pray that we would be corrected by tonight and look at this word from you and be more confident in your promises. And Jesus, we, we know that you are the only source of life. We know that you are going to come and fix all the problems in the world, but I pray that every person here would trust you with their whole heart. They'd ask you to save them. They'd depend on you for life. 
pray that you would help us see these things. We know that it's impossible to do it on our own.